Have you ever heard the motives of someone that you love questioned uh, or, or their actions questioned? If so, uh, and uh, particularly if you know that uh, if you know that what's been been said about them is not true, uh, everything in you wants to defend them. Well, I actually feel a little bit like that with Elijah here in this chapter when it comes to the treatment that he gets from many commentators. Uh, Now, I have no problem pointing out the sins and feelings of Bible characters. Uh, The Bible doesn't feel the need to to mask those things. Uh, But I do think we need to make sure that we're listening uh, to what what God is saying in a particular portion of his word uh, and not just what we think it might be saying. So what do I mean by that? Well, well, in the last chapter, we've seen Elijah at his best. He, he's openly vindicated by God as he wins a tremendous victory over the prophets of Baal. But here in verse 19, this, we're told, is where he blows it. According to one commentator, Elijah, the hero of faith on Mount Carmel, becomes the coward of unbelief at Horeb. A.W. Pink, who's usually a reliable enough voice, says, As Peter's courage failed him in the presence of the maid, so Elijah's strength wilted before the threatenings of Jezebel. Uh, Someone else says that Elijah's answer uh, to God's questions in this chapter completely devalued what had happened on Mount Carmel. He ignored God's victory over Baal as though it had achieved nothing. So is Elijah here being presented as a quitter, as a crumbling coward? Has the warrior turned into a wimp? Well, I think not, and I hope we can see that this evening, as with God's help we try and come to this chapter with fresh eyes. We have two headings this evening, and the first is the fact that sometimes your hopes for Christ's kingdom will be disappointed. Sometimes your hopes for Christ's kingdom will be disappointed. What happens next? Uh, Sometimes you're you're shown a photo and asked to guess what happens next. Uh, Well, well, what happens if you're shown 1 Kings 18 and asked to guess what happens next? Because we've just left a a gloriously triumphant scene. Uh, Fire has fallen from heaven to consume Elijah's water-drenched sacrifice. The false prophets that have been leading the nation astray have been killed. And so if, you've, if you had never read 1 Kings 19, what would you expect to happen next? Well, surely the picture you would expect to see is of the nation turning to God. Of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel doing a, a political U-turn and establishing the worship of the Lord. Or else for the people to have risen up and overthrown Ahab and Jezebel if they will not turn. We expect to see a complete turnaround. Uh, We expect to see the whole nation worshipping God. And it seems clear that that is what Elijah expected as well. 
Uh, why do I say that? Well, because at the end of the last chapter, Elijah has, ran, has run to Jezreel. Uh, where was Jezreel? Well, it was like a second capital city. Uh, chapter 21 tells us that Ahab's palace was there. Uh, remember, Elijah has just spent three years on the run. Uh, the only place, the only reason he could have for running to one of Ahab's palaces is if he thought the tide had turned. He, he would have had to be utterly convinced that the things had changed, that it was safe to come out of hiding, or, or he wouldn't have gone near the place. And in light of what has happened, a complete transformation looks like a nailed-on certainty. Uh, we've just seen in verse 39 of chapter 18, all the people falling on their faces and saying, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The worship of Baal has been proven to be a fraud in front of the watching nation. So of course things are going to change. Aren't they? Aren't they? Well, verse 2, Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She swears by the very same gods that have just been openly exposed as empty. And she swears by those gods that if Elijah is still around the next day, he is a dead man. Dear Ralph Davis, uh, he's really helpful in this chapter. He, he, he imagines Ahab mildly protesting. But, but Jezebel, when Elijah prayed to, prayed to Yahweh, fire came down and, uh, and slurped up everything right in, front of, right in front of us. To which the queen glares uh, through mascara-laden lashes at her husband and derisively says, So? And if we're surprised, uh, it's because we don't really get it when the Bible uh, says that the human heart is dead unless the Holy Spirit works. Uh, that the human heart is as hard as stone unless it is made alive by the Spirit. We tend to think that if there is some archaeological discovery that backs up the Bible, then people are sure to believe uh, expeditions have, have set out to try and find Noah's Ark and, and we, th we think that if, if we can find that people will be convinced or if, if a really big celebrity converts to Christianity then people will start taking it seriously or that if only we can get people along to, to a, a well run evangelistic event yeah, they'll be convinced and converted but God in his grace lets 1 Kings 18 be followed by 1 Kings 19 uh, to show uh, that it's not so straightforward. That there is no one thing that could happen that will convince someone if the Holy Spirit doesn't change their heart. If this dramatic showdown in Mount Carmel couldn't bring real change to people, well nothing that we can do will We read this and think, surely what the people have just seen will convince them. Uh, but Jezebel certainly hasn't changed. And despite the people's enthusiastic chanting on the mountain, there doesn't seem any real appetite for change from them either. 
there certainly aren't people flocking to stand beside Elijah and call for an end to the God-hating regime. To the natural human heart, the most amazing works of God are like water off a duck's back. It just doesn't make any difference. As Jesus said in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, that is if they don't listen to the Bible, neither will they be convinced even if someone will rise from the dead. And I think we struggle to believe that. Now, governments tend to think that education is the answer to the nation's ills, uh, whether reducing teen pregnancies or eliminating racism or ending poverty. They think, well, we just need a bit more education. Uh, But we know that education isn't the answer. Giving the people the right information won't solve moral issues. But sometimes we can swallow that philosophy when it comes to the church. That, that if only we can give the people the right information, present it attractively enough, then it will change them. Uh, but it doesn't. And far from convincing Jezebel, it just makes her angrier. And often that happens too. The, the very things that should convince people about God just harden them against him. And suddenly... It makes a lot more sense to to translate verse 3 as, and he saw. Uh, I think one of the reasons that people uh, think it it must be meant to be afraid is, is they said, what did Elijah see? But but what did he see? He he saw that nothing had changed. The nation wasn't really any closer to turning back to God. I imagine this would be what it was like if you were getting a lift somewhere. And the person got to uh, near where they were meant to drop you off. And they just kept going. Uh, You've been confidently expecting the journey to to come to an end. And it doesn't. And you start to get worried. That this is not what I expected. And at this point Elijah sees the writing on the wall. And he bails out. In verse 3 he runs for his life. So we're, we're, we're literally told that he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. But it's not because he's scared of dying. After all, in the very next verse, he, he prays that God would take his life. So, so people say, well, Elijah, he's just scared he's running away because he's trying to, to save his skin. But he's not scared of dying. In fact, he wants to die. He just doesn't want to die at Jezebel's hand. He doesn't want it to look like she's won. And so he flees into the wilderness where no one would give Jezebel credit for his death. And he pleads that the Lord would take his life. Someone said he's not terrified by Jezebel, but he's broken by her unrepentant paganism and her continuing power over the nation. He's not scared, he's not a coward. But he is broken. Elijah lived at a significant time in the nation's history. uh, Between the the giving of the law uh, through Moses. The the glorious reigns of David and Solomon. uh, And then over on the other side you have the people's eventual exile. uh, And Elijah's life work has been trying to bring the people back to God. 
Uh, that's why he endured living in the wilderness and in pagan Zarephath during those years of famine. And in the last chapter, it, it looks like he's finally achieved what he's been working for. But it turns to dust and slips through his fingers. All his hopes have been deflated. And he's now a broken man. His great hopes for Christ's kingdom have been disappointed. And just when they seemed on the very verge of being fulfilled. And at times it may seem like your hopes for Christ's kingdom have been disappointed too. Uh, maybe we've invested years in someone either as a congregation or individually. Uh, maybe you've spent time with someone, you, you've worked through issues with them, you've, you've rejoiced when they've rejoiced and you've wept when they've wept. And then they, they turn back and throw it in your face. And maybe you've given the best part of your life to serving a congregation or a denomination and certain things happen and you wonder if everything you've done has been for nothing. But that sense of crushing disappointment is nothing new for God's servant. God's servants. And I don't think we can blame Elijah here. Was he wrong to have high hopes for his nation? Was he wrong to be bitterly disappointed that they didn't turn? Now we can't go around just assuming that people are going to let us down. Or that people we, we think have been converted are going to fall away. But sometimes that is going to happen. And 1 Kings 19 helps prepare us for that. It's another indication that, that the Bible is a book that understands you, that the God of the Bible is a God who understands you. Things aren't always going to work out the way that we hope they will. Sometimes our greatest hopes for Christ's kingdom will be disappointed. And we need to understand that. But thankfully it's not the end of the story. Because secondly, tonight we see how God cares for his broken servants. How God cares for his broken servants. These days it only takes someone to make an accusation against a high profile figure. For that figure to be dropped like a hot potato by everyone associated with them. Uh, people are almost racing to, uh, to join the pylon. Well, when it comes to 1 Kings 19 with Elijah at his lowest point, it seems that many commentators are quick to pile on. They accuse him of cowardice and exaggeration. Uh, they explain away his actions in this chapter as those of someone who's undergoing some sort of breakdown. Uh, the actions of someone who's acting completely irrationally. But even if many commentators may hang Elijah out to dry here, God doesn't. God doesn't. Elijah is at his lowest point. Jezebel is still on the rampage. God's people have said the right thing, but they failed to back it up with their actions. Elijah is a broken man. But at that very point, God comes to him and strengthens him. <coughs> Nothing in verses 5 through 8 suggests that Elijah has done the wrong thing. 
Yes, God doesn't answer his prayer to take his life, but, but nor does God tell Elijah to, to pull himself back together and get on the next train back to Israel. Instead, God prepares him for a 200-mile journey to a very significant place. Uh, we'll look at the, the precise significance of it next week. Uh, but in short, verse, verse 8 describes it as Horeb, the Mount of God. Oh, it's also known as Mount Sinai. Whether the, the journey was God's suggestion or whether Elijah has already been thinking that, we're not told. But certainly God endorses it by giving him the strength to do it. Uh, and again, uh, just as we saw uh, this morning, we, we've that significant number again of 40, 40 days uh, and 40 nights. And it's worth noticing here the, the different ways that God cares for his broken servant. God doesn't just care for Elijah's spiritual needs, but his physical ones. God sends an angel to, to touch him, to give him food, and then let him get enough sleep. We are physical creatures as well as spiritual And what an honour, by the way, it is to send an angel to strengthen Elijah. Because God would do this, the very same thing 900 years later for his own son. As Jesus prays in anguish on the Mount of Olives, God sends an angel from heaven to strengthen him. Maybe even the same angel. Now many take God's question to Elijah in verses 9 and 13 is an accusation what are you doing here Elijah but is it not possible that that's an invitation a gentle invitation for Elijah to unburden himself Elijah is weighed down with the cares of the nation it seems that no one else really gets it but God invites him to pour out his cares to him just as Jesus so tenderly asks Mary in the garden, Woman, why are you weeping? And he, he lets her uh, tell him what's wrong before he turns her sorrow into joy. And maybe you've been bottling something up. You feel that there's no one you could unburden yourself to. But God cares. He already knows what it is, of course, but, but he wants you to tell him. He wants you to tell him. It's not that he, that he needs the information, but in love he says, why don't you tell me about it? Why don't you tell me about it? Uh, many of the commentators may not want to, to hear about Elijah's sorrows, but God does. God does. Now, of course, there is a difference between honestly pouring our heart out to God and just having a rant. So which category is Elijah in? Well, look in verse 10 at how God-centered his prayer is. What is it that, that, is, that is so broken, Elijah? Verse 10, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. Despite the hundred prophets in the caves, Elijah is the only one left taking a public stand for God. Uh, and the nation as, as a whole are seeking his life. 
So while there's much comfort to be taken from how God deals with Elijah, it's also important to ask if we get upset for the same reasons that he is. Uh, Maybe a a good question to ask would be, what are the things that upset us most? What do we get most down about? Is it simply our, our... job or our family situation our relationship or is it the church of jesus christ or are are our cares about other things uh, up here and our cares about the church of christ are down low does the state of the church move you to to pray like elijah does here and not just uh, If we see our own congregation struggling or because we'd rather Christians in our nation weren't becoming such a minority. But because so few people give Christ a second thought. Because his name is dishonoured or put on the same level as that of of Muhammad or, or other false religions. Or when we see his name cynically being used by politicians to get a few votes. If we do find ourselves in the same position as Elijah, may it be because Christ's kingdom hasn't come, not because ours hasn't. May it be because people have let him down, not because they've let us down. May it be because they're mocking him, not because they're mocking us. Uh, This is a God-centered grief from Elijah. It's not a petty, oh, people, people aren't listening to me type thing. It's a God-centered grief. So God cares for his broken servant by inviting him to pour out his heart to him. But above all, God cares for him by revealing himself to him. By giving Elijah a greater understanding of who he is. God tells him in verse 11 to go out and stand on the mountain. God is going to pass by and the question is what form will it take? So Elijah goes out and he waits. Then comes a great strong wind. Uh, The other week we had the first named storm of the season. But the worst storm that we have seen would be like a gentle breeze compared to this. We're told that the mountains were torn and the rocks were broken in pieces. Surely that must be God passing by. But we're told that he wasn't in it. Then come earthquake and fire. But again we're told that God wasn't in them. And then finally the still small voice. It's more than a silence because verse 13 tells us that Elijah heard it. Uh, we're not told specifically that God was in it, but it's clear that he was. So the voice was the voice of God. Uh, the, the same word is translated as voice in the next verse when God speaks again to Elijah. So it's certainly a dramatic part of scripture, but what is it telling us? Is it saying that sometimes we need to go away from the hustle and bustle uh, and go stand beside a stream or something like that Uh, and then maybe we'll hear the voice of God is it saying that Elijah needs to take a more softly softly approach 
Uh, as some suggest, well, no. There's nothing wrong with Elijah's approach. Everything he, he's done has been at the command of God. Instead, what we're being reminded of here is not to look for God in the spectacular, but in his word. That our God speaks above all, not in nature or in dramatic events, but in his word. How is that relevant to Elijah? Well, in the last chapter, God has been present in the fire. God has done the dramatic stuff, but the people haven't listened God is saying that since such revelation has been rejected, from now on his presence and reality won't be seen in such dramatic signs, but in his word. You can imagine Elijah thinking, if they won't believe after Mount Carmel, they'll never believe. If fire from heaven won't convince them, nothing will. But God reassures Elijah that he is still speaking, and he's speaking through his word. Christians today look for wind, earthquake and fire, for the spectacular and dramatic. But God isn't in them. In the last chapter it is Baal worship that works itself up into a frenzy. Biblical faith is content with the word. And if Elijah had to be reminded of that in a day of signs and wonders, how much more do we need to relearn it today? God cares for his broken servant by inviting his prayers and speaking to him by his word. And he does the same for us. He invites our prayers. He tells us to tell him all about it and then he speaks to us in his word. And then next time, God willing, we'll we'll come back to look at the second half of this chapter and see how God goes on to reassure Elijah that all is not lost, despite what it might seem, and that even at a time like this, even in days of judgment, he will build his church. Even in days of judgment, he will build his church. Amen. Well, let's finish with words of comfort from Psalm 56. Psalm 56, 3 to 7. Page 115. Starting off with a slightly different version of some words that the boys and girls know well. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Uh, Verse 4. How true of Elijah All day they twist my words, their thoughts towards me for evil are. Uh, They watch my steps to take my life. They wait, lurk and conspire. Uh, People twisting Elijah's words, people conspiring against him to take his life. Uh, Things that were even more true of the Lord Jesus. Uh, And particularly uh, in light of what we've just seen tonight, we we want to notice verse 6. Others might criticize Elijah's tears, but God collects them. Others might criticize them, but God collects them. He puts them in his bottle. Into your bottle put my tears. Are they not in your book? 
And when our tears fall, what are they falling over? Are they, are they falling over the cause of God in this world? Are they falling over uh, those who, who do not know the Lord? Or those who, who have known him and have turned away from him? Uh, he, he invites our tears. He invites us to pour out our souls to him. And he will speak to us and reassure us in his words. So the tune is Belmont 52, Psalm 56, 3 to 7. If you're able, we'll stand as we sing. <laughs> 